0: You're listening to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline. I'm Julie Sook.
1: And I'm Jed Sugarman. We are colleagues at Fordham Law School, and we are the hosts of a Fordham Law podcast about threats to constitutional democracy and what we can do about them.
0: We have a special breaking news hot off the oral argument episode today. This morning, two cases were argued at the Supreme Court. Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina, and Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College. The plaintiffs are challenging the use of race in the university's admissions process, claiming that the universities discriminate against Asian American applicants and violate the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Students for Fair Admissions asks the Supreme Court to overturn a decades-old precedent that recognized diversity as a compelling and sufficient justification for the consciousness of race in university admissions. This case has broad and deep implications for racial equality and democracy in America and the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. We're joined by five outstanding guests today, just a few hours after the oral argument ended. I thought it was never going to end, actually. Uh, But here we are. Uh, We have with us uh, Kimberly West Falcon, a professor at Loyola Law School in California and an expert on constitutional law and employment discrimination and a civil rights attorney for a decade at the Legal Defense Fund at under at the NAACP.
1: We also have Eleanor Brown, a law professor at Penn State now and joining Fordham Law School full time that's starting this spring. She's an expert on race, immigration and legal history with a forthcoming book on the experience of Caribbean immigrants to America and the legacy of slavery. And she signed one of the amicus briefs in this case, the brief of black women law scholars.
0: Tom Lee, another colleague at Fordham Law School, also an expert on constitutional law, federal courts and race, and co-director, along with Judge Jenny Chin, of Fordham Center on Asian Americans and the Law.
1: And we also have a co-author of a fascinating critical legal studies brief uh, that seemed to catch some attention from some of the conservative justices, perhaps, today. Um, so that is Jonathan Feingold, law professor at Boston University School of Law and the host of Hashtag Race Class, a conversation on race and racism and class and classism in America. Uh, and he uh, co-wrote this uh, amicus brief with Vinay Harpalani of the University of New Mexico. We also have two law students, uh, Tristan Betts of the Boston University School of Law and Joey Ammon of Fordham Law School. So let's get right into uh, something of a lightning round of reactions. Can we start with you about your thoughts immediately after this oral argument?
2: Well, my thought was that um, I found myself... Surprised by a little more nuanced amongst the right leaning justices than I expected. I, I didn't know exactly how Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett would enter the conversation. And so something I found rather striking, is how we have four of the six who are in a a pretty um, extreme view of uh, what it means uh, to discriminate on the basis of race uh, in the historical context. And then Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh um, leaving us with, uh, I think, some questions about um, exactly how they're going to write their probably individual opinions in the case.
3: Terrific.
1: How about Jonathan? What, what, What are your immediate
3: reactions? I was just caught by the power of colorblindness. Because we had almost five hours of oral argument and it was the whole time affirmative action was on trial. The question is whether or not there's a sufficient justification for Harvard and UNC to consider race in the most modest way to try to do a lot of really important things. We spent five hours just asking the question, well, is affirmative action okay? We didn't spend any time really asking whether all the things that affirmative action is needed to counter are okay. And that is largely because this notion of colorblindness has become so deeply infused in our constitutional and just equality jurisprudence um, that just, there was so little space to even ask um, what I think is the more important predicate question.
1: Thank you, Jonathan.
4: Eleanor, how about you? My reaction was that, Justices Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett sounded more nuanced than I anticipated. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by that. Simultaneously, um I remain pessimistic about the outcome. Um so more nuanced than I expected from two of the four of two of the conservative justices in summary but still pessimistic. It didn't change my overall view of what the likely outcome is going to be. Uh, Julie, how about you? What, you what, are your, what are your initial thoughts?
0: So my initial thoughts were that it's amazing what a corner the proponents of racial justice have been pushed into by the doctrine that has developed over the last 50 years. And I think you saw that because uh, in Baki. The Supreme Court said quotas were unconstitutional, but holistic review was okay. Uh, But we never revisited the quotas question, even though constitutional democracies uh, around the world use quotas to achieve representation of underrepresented groups, including women, all the time. Uh, So that's one. Uh, The next thing is that the Supreme Court said uh, several decades ago that diversity was the only compelling. state interest and not remedying societal discrimination. And that I think has crippled the way that we can talk about the need for racial justice and the need to repair societal discrimination in our history. Uh, and uh, and then just getting back to the question of quotas, uh, even when we're not doing quotas, I think every time we talk about using numbers to Measure whether or not we're successful at uh, at achieving racial representation or justice. People feel very nervous because it sounds a little bit too close to the quota, which everybody accepts without questioning as unconstitutional. Uh, So, to me, all of the questioning from all of the justices, conservative or liberal, uh, really was a reminder uh, that we're in a racial justice crisis because the doctrine that has developed over all this time uh, has made it really difficult to have honest conversations. about what really needs to happen uh, for equality to be real in America.
1: So something that Eleanor flagged was the surprising nuance of Gorsuch and Justice Barrett. There were some subtle things going on from a mix of the justices, and I would call it a shell game when it comes to a mix of originalism plus doctrine plus textualism because of those three shells, originalism, precedent and textualism, I observed a shell game and let me just summarize it because I think they were working out how they're going to write their opinions. So I was struck that both Gorsuch and Barrett acknowledged to uh, rejected the plaintiffs argument that the original public meaning was clear and that racial classifications back to the 1860s were uh part of the original public meaning of the 14th amendment equal protection clause that you could never ha- that racial classifications were always impermissible Gorsuch and Barrett rejected that and while that seems like wait a second that does that give up the originalist argument here they were working out how they would make a series of moves to acknowledge and play jujitsu with that historical record. So the w- first move, just if I can flag them briefly, I think, first of all, that even though they were acknowledging that the 1860s Congress with things like the Freedmen's Bureau explicitly recognizing race, um, it seemed to me that Amy Coney Barrett was saying that even if that acknowledging that that was a racial classification, that in the 1860s and early 1870s was a more immediate remedy for former slaves. That may have been a compelling interest then, which is not an original public meaning language, but what is that's the mix of, of doctrine for her. But I think she was hinting that she would say, look, a remedy— for slavery might have been valid then in the 1860s, but it's no longer a compelling state interest now, one. Two, Gorsuch was regularly ridiculing the idea of a diversity interest. So saying, look, remedying past discrimination might have been an interest at some point as a matter of the 1860s, but this new diversity interest is not a compelling state interest. And that's where he was ridiculing legacy and alumni and squash teams. Uh, come back to Jonathan on the question of legacy here. And so I think those two moves were basically saying, almost, they thought they were making a point about history. I think there's a little living constitutionalism there that they don't want to admit, that that meaning changes. And the last move I want to highlight is that Gorsuch was willing to move past the 14th Amendment. And he was basically saying, look, you remember what I did in Bostock? You liberals, you might be celebrating my textual move. And just to pause here for a minute, what he was saying is when the word sex in a statute from the 1960s He interpreted that word sex regardless of its history, but just as the word sex, that discrimination on the basis of sex is a formal rule. I don't care about the history, but its text is clear, and LGBT people who celebrated that textual move— he is signaling that he's going to make that that move. We should have been seeing coming on race and soon on religion as a formal rule of color blindness, not based on history of the 1860s, but based on his very thin reading of a text from the 1960s. I just wanted to flag that. Yeah, Kim, go Love ahead. Love
2: to jump in because when you're talking new textualism or original meaning originalism you're talking my language and i'd love to give you some adjectives um disingenuousness would be one yeah. i would start with yeah. um cynicism hypocrisy i mean i could i could give a number but where i'll start is i don't think it is it is at all accurate to characterize this as hours and hours that really had much to do with original meaning originalism at all I mean that's the key piece of hypocrisy behind our right-leaning justices that they're very selective when they want to actually engage in what is in and of itself a very um, fantastical. We use it as we want it, and our rules are are, are much more complex and much more judge empowering than we'll let on, but. We had mostly the justices who were pro-affirmative action to just kind of get put a point on it, bringing up history. But we did not have the same kind of discourse we've had in the Second Amendment cases, for instance, where there was a deep engagement with um, with with what the original either specific intent of those who wrote the words of the 14th Amendment equal protection clause meant or with respect to textualism. I thought that Justice Gorsuch's reference to the Bostock was, again, an example of a, a real cynicism. And I think our Solicitor General was brilliant today. I think there were a lot of
0: really brilliant. Kim, what do you think this says about originalism in this context? Is this an argument against originalism in this context or an argument for originalism in this context? Or neither.
2: Well, I always want to make it very clear that our current justices, we don't have a 6 3 majority of justices who care about specific intent originalism. And what they really benefit from is that the average person, even the average law professor, thinks they do care what the people who wrote the words intended the Equal Protection Clause to mean. But they do not. That is a key feature of Scalia's style, original meaning, originalism. Well, it's because
0: they think there's a public meaning. There's a public meaning that's contemporaneous, that's different from the author's intent. Which they divine, and they say as a historian's art,
2: in the present day, using books and dictionaries and whatever they have at their present day desk in D.C., and then they will announce to us what the supposed original meaning was, but it's a very specific one. And that's also the same with textualism, which is where I go back to Justice Gorsuch, because he too when he uses his form of textualism, does not care what the specific intent of those who wrote the words was. So Justice Gorsuch neither cares what the Congress that authored Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, nor Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So the threat to those who are the beneficiaries of a stare decisis-based interpretation of Title Seven, meaning people who are potential and victims of LGBTQ employment discrimination, to threaten them with we're going to take back the rights we interpreted into the, into Title VII based on interpreting not the word discrimination, but interpreting the words because of sex. I found to be one of numerous instances where our justices didn't demonstrate a knowledge of their own opinions in some cases, you know, I could go on and I won't. I'll stop here. But VMI, I was like, you're not going to do well on my exam the way some of you were talking about what the court did in VMI. And I felt that was also true of the way Justice Gorsuch was trying to take advantage of Bostock, because he didn't define the term discrimination in Bostock, but he was implying that he had. I think he defined the word because of sex, but disregarded what the purpose of the Title VII was by those who wrote the words. And I think there's an absolute willingness to do the same thing with Title VII and the Equal Protection Clause. Specific intent of those who wrote the words are not part of either original meaning originalism or Scalia-style new textualism.
1: Can I just add, Kim, that, in fact, he was making another move in avoiding relying on Title VII because there is a long line of precedent that goes against his result. So his move today was to say, no, no, I am not talking about Title VII. I'm talking about Title VI so that he – in that shell game between, between original public – between originalism, textualism and precedent, he's trying to clear out any precedent that could stand in his way – and say we're now interpreting Title VI from a clean slate. But
2: there is precedent slate. saying that yeah. the meaning of yeah. Title VI is dictated by the meaning of <laughs> Title Seven. So again, right. we have a court right. willing to ignore precedent. So I'd right. say that's a big Tom, thing. Tom,
1: what are your initial reactions to the oral argument today?
5: You know, I, I thought that it was a long, interesting discourse. Um, I actually was somewhat surprised. Um, I, I thought that... Um, Roberts and Kavanaugh, in particular, seem more receptive to the idea that some form of race-conscious admissions process is inevitable, right? Than 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 I would have expected. Um, it was interesting. Um, I saw Justice Thomas. I caught his exchange regarding diversity. It's the most, uh, and let's let's say, I mean, it's the most animated he's been about a case that I've I've seen him. Um, I thought that uh uh it was it was interesting um and and you know so that that was my reaction um was there anything that really surprised me um i i thought with all the and i J- julie and i were talking about this earlier and so uh, in her class i thought that with all of the the originalism in bruin and dobbs i uh, i thought that there'd be um, more attention to whether or not some kind of beneficial race based process um, favoring um, Black Americans was consistent with the original intent, original meaning, public meaning of 1868.
0: What did you think of the discussion? I mean, it did come up, you know, it was brought up at several moments, but I, I agree that there it wasn't pursued uh, in a thorough way. But what did you think of the exchanges that took place about race-conscious action in, in the context of Reconstruction? There was one point
5: where Kavanaugh and, and Strawbridge, SFAA, Council engaged on this in the Harvard argument. And and Kavanaugh brought up the fact that, well, there's the Freedmen's Bureau, and the rejoinder there is that's a federal program, not a state program. But there are these sort of um, pro-Black uh, programs. And, and he um, there are two statutes that were mentioned in the briefing, one in Kentucky and South Carolina. And uh, the SFFA lawyer's um, initial reaction was, well, those are about um, enslaved persons and refugees. They were not about Um, race at all. In fact, they were about these categories of persons. And then Kavanaugh sort of had a brilliant comeback, said, "Okay, well, so what if we had a modern day um, preference for the descendants of enslaved persons? Would that be okay?" (laughs) And uh, the lawyer kind of hemmed and hawed a bit. And and then essentially. Well,
0: he was really resisting that. But I thought Kavanaugh was open to it. And what was and what was fascinating to me is that if if Kavanaugh actually wants to arrive at a place where descendants of slaves is not a racial category or a racial classification, that would be subject to rational basis review and you wouldn't need diversity to justify it. Uh, and you might even be able to bring back societal discrimination on rational basis review if we're not talking about a racial classification in the first place. No,
5: exactly. Uh, Backward looking societal discrimination is, you know, that that's not allowed. But could it come back in this way? <laughs> So it was interesting because the council finally regained his sea legs and his reaction ultimately was like, well, when no. <laughs> when, when the generations have passed by, uh, it really does become essentially a race-based category, even though it might have started as sort of a functional category that would have been acceptable. And I don't think that's a very persuasive rejoinder. It's really the only rejoinder he had available. But I found that exchange fascinating because in some sense, there's the possibility, ironically, of... of Resuscitating societal discrimination as a basis, as long as you sort of put it in this category. Uh, and, 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 and I thought that was a fascinating exchange.
1: So there's a possibility for five, for a five, four decision by, by your math here, Tom and Julie, that if it's, if there could be a coalition for asking the question of if you are the descendant of slaves, uh, that is not race. That is more directly tied to remedy. That could be uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh and the three liberals but that would also cut off affirmative action for lots of other groups i mean you know uh, maybe native americans
0: could be well you could, could create other categories category, uh, so latinos uh, Latinos. So maybe asian american is also a racial category or asian is a racial category but descended from chinese excluded by the chinese exclusion acts would be a, a different kind of category. And you could, uh, descended from uh, immigrants, I mean, there are a lot of different ways that you could rewrite many of the things that we now call racial classifications by uh, Looking at history uh, and histories of disadvantage or oppression as the basis of those categories, uh, I doubt that the justices that we're talking about are up for uh, rewriting the law of affirmative action in this way. Uh, but I thought thought there was a glimmer there in the oral arguments uh, that could be an entry point for rewriting the doctrine.
2: As someone who is descendant
0: have... from yeah. American slaves,
2: I just feel like this conversation. I'm a little I'm a little thrown off by it. Honestly, like why. It was even getting sea legs because I thought that was striking for how much it parallels what we've seen with Dobbs. That what to me that moment revealed is how absolutely anti-Black this entire exercise is ultimately, that what it revealed to me was that. This entire decades long endeavor is intermittently sold as we're trying to vindicate the civil rights of Asian Americans. We care about colorblindness. Well, if you cared about colorblindness, why wouldn't you be suing in the criminal justice system? Like this is a, a very selective attack on the use of race conscious remedies. But what I saw in that moment was Justice Kavanaugh do the analysis that most of us would do with our law students, which is if the category that Harvard actually used was we take into account whether you can demonstrate you are descended from someone who is enslaved in the Americas, that is not a facial racial classification in any way, shape or form. And when presented with that as an option, the people who purport that they care and are open to a variety of race neutral, facially race neutral classifications, we're open to 10 percent plans, things of that sort supposedly, but much like saying we are going to just regulate the width of hallways because we care about women's health or physicians admitting privileges, the moment Grutter is overturned, what it also demonstrated is we will go after any effort to ensure that there are more Black people at Harvard, no matter what you call it. So I saw that moment as, as very different. And I do not think any of it's an indication that Justice Barrett or Justice Kavanaugh is willing to uphold either Harvard or UNC's policies. I just want to be clear that in saying Um, there was nuance, I think they're all, all six of them are going to, are much more likely to say that these policies are unconstitutional or um, violate Title VI.
1: Okay, Jonathan, what do you, jump on in.
3: So I just wanted to jump in in part because I had in some sense a very consistent, I think, Uh, reaction to some of what Kim had, which is that to the extent the court cares about formality and it always tells us that it cares about formality, then it seems I have no idea why you would treat someone who is the descendant of a particular category that's not per se racial any different than legacy from a constitutional perspective. And to even the ability to have a conversation that is inflected in different ways suggests that there's a, for some reason, and we could have a longer conversation why, the court continues to view legacy as constitutionally totally fine, notwithstanding the fact that it is in all forms, in all ways except for like form, the grandfather clause for university admissions. And then just another side point, I I saw Eleanor wanting to jump in too, so I'll be quick. The other, just the side conversations that kept going on about race-neutral alternatives. And Kim's just, I think, really just incisive point that the target is not just race consciousness. The target ultimately are all policies that universities employ in order to promote racial diversity And it's not a hypothetical because we know that there are live cases going on right now where some of the same entities that are supporting SFFA here are arguing that elite public high schools around the country are violating federal law, constitutional and Title VI when they make facial, when they employ the race neutral alternatives that the right-wing justices and SFFAs are saying should be applied here. And so I think we should just be aware that this is, you know, maybe step seven of an eight-step dance, and now we're at step seven, but it's certainly not the end of the dance.
1: Jonathan, I want to make sure we come back to you and Vinay on your fascinating brief, where I think you're taking the dance to step nine and 10, or maybe you're taking it to 11 with a critique of legacy plus as a racial privilege. Let's make sure we get back to that in a minute. But Eleanor, uh, you also wanted to jump in.
4: I would call it step seven and a half. And I thought what Kim just said about the period prior to Dobbs, when we're pretending that what we care about is admitting privileges and women's health, when, you know, as Dorothy Roberts has said, as Catherine Franke has said, you know, for a long time, if you're a black woman in Mississippi or if you're a woman in Appalachia, you have not had access to termination. Um, All Dobbs did was to declare de jure what had been de facto true for many people for a very long time. And my read, like Kim, is that we're very much at that moment now, right? And to pretend that we're not at that moment is to give credence to what is, to use Kim's most charitable word, is really disingenuousness. Um, I'm going to say one more thing, which is going to be controversial, but I might return to it a little later. As I have tried as a black parent to explain to my children the particular moment that we're in, the way I have explained it to them is as a reconstruction backlash. That's the framework that I give them to think about it. And part of it is because I'm speaking to children that they need a framework that is age-appropriate. But part of it is also because in keeping with what Kim just said and in keeping with what I think Jonathan just said, I do not want to give credence to what I see as being ultimately disingenuous. And so to be talking about the descendants of persons who were enslaved and to pretend that that is talking about anything other than talking about race, talking about black people, um, for me is giving credence to, am I, am, are you following what I'm saying? Yes. So I wouldn't expect a recognition of the descendants of persons who were victims of exclusion or were victims of, of of the internment camps, because that's not what it's really about. And to pretend otherwise for me is, Kim said it in a more articulate way, but you get my point.
1: Your point is really well taken, which is it, it locates the wrong of racism in America uh, as something that started and stopped 150, you know, 200, 200 years ago, uh, to 150
4: years ago. And that is the disingenuousness. Yes. Absolutely. And there was a there
1: was an erasure of Jim Crow in this argument too, right? So, but I want to make sure we bring exactly, in, yeah, exactly, we, terrific. And what, Thank
4: what, you. let me say one other thing, James. The reason the Reconstruction metaphor works so well is if you're thinking of the Second Reconstruction as that period that Kim is referring to, Voting Rights Act, all the other um, acts, um, and what is happening now is appropriately characterized as a reaction to that. And it's a framework that gives you, in my view, a way to see through all these dances that they're doing, which are disingenuous.
1: Excellent. I thank you, Eleanor. I I'd like to, we, we have Vinay now, as, uh, so Jonathan and Vinay were co-authors of a very interesting brief. There were times where, I, it seemed like Gorsuch was the one picking up on it, uh, with with questions of the role of legacy and alumni policy. But um, and there has to be some translating done because I, I, I then think I lost the thread a bit from Gorsuch. But Jonathan and Vinay, can, can you jump in and, and summarize uh, your argument here and how you thought it mapped onto today's oral argument?
3: So what Vinay and I wanted to do in our brief was to take seriously SFFA's allegation that Asian-Americans are suffering some sort of racial harm in Harvard's admissions process, not to suggest it was necessarily legally cognizable, but we wanted to take it seriously.
0: Are you talking about the personal rating that the justices talked about, that the, the statistically... Um lower personal ratings that Asian Americans, is that what you're, for the sake of argument, accepting as racial well, harm? or Well, so
3: so broadly, just the claim in a somewhat sort of abstract sense that Asian Americans suffer some sort of harm. And so we're just looking at, well, what is the evidence that SFFA is proffering to substantiate the claim that Asian Americans are suffering some sort of racially inflected disadvantage? Uh, and what you see, if you take seriously SFFA's um, own evidence are some really important things. And they're really important because they actually exonerate affirmative action as the source of anti-Asian bias to the extent anti-Asian bias arises. And you know that in part because all of the sources that SFFA identifies are facially blind components within Harvard's admissions process, including like what Julie said, the personal rating, which is essentially a conglomeration of a number of different um, factors but all of which are facially uh, race blind. Another significant source of uh, what I think is fair to call anti-Asian bias are Harvard's legacy preferences. And just the raw numbers, according to SFFA's own expert, suggests that 1,600, roughly, white students from a recent five or six year period were admitted with credentials that should not have led to their admission. They're actually underqualified per Harvard's own standards, but they were able to get in because they were legacy applicants. And they're white, they're wealthy, and they're getting a boost to the disadvantage of all students of color, including Asian Americans. And Vinay and I wanted to surface this among other sites of uh, or among other colorblind considerations that in effect artificially inflate the apparent qualifications of white applicants in ways that disadvantage all students of color, including uh, Asian Americans. We wanted to lift that up in part because Harvard wasn't doing that work. Something that Harvard has not done sufficiently through this litigation is to recognize all the sites of white racial advantage within their admissions process and legacy is a site of it, so is the personal rating.
0: So Jonathan and Vinay, did you think that Gorsuch was picking up on your argument or what was he? Because I thought I heard Gorsuch saying Harvard has not sufficiently explored its race neutral alternatives, including just banning athletic legacy and faculty preferences. Uh, And uh, and if you took him at his word, I mean, I totally take Eleanor and Kim's point about disingenuousness. Uh, But you might say uh, that the test Gorsuch is proposing then is... Any institution that has taken the step of banning legacy and athletic and faculty preference admissions, if you've done that, you are now allowed to do race conscious admissions. But if you haven't done that, uh, then uh, don't even think about doing race conscious admissions. If that could be a workable test. I mean, I don't think he was going there. Uh, I think he was trying to say uh, that because this thing exists, uh, we can ban race conscious admissions.
3: So I'm going to be very brief because I want to hear from Kim, and I'm hoping um, that Kim brings in some Title VI um, knowledge here. I'm not sure if that's where she's going. But so I think it's very disingenuous what the right wing justices are doing and what SFFA is doing with legacy. But it is a really nice opportunity for them because legacy is such an anti-meritocratic admissions mechanism and that it's totally unjustifiable for Harvard to continue to employ it. Um, And there is doctrine that suggests that you have to uh, employ race-neutral alternatives or at least make sure that they are not able to get you racial diversity. And Harvard continues to grant this massive racial class bonus to wealthy white applicants. Um, But the the tricky thing here is that on the one hand, uh, the right-wing justices, Are suggesting that legacy bonuses are problematic because they are locking out more qualified students of color who should be there Uh, and they're saying that so Harvard if you use them you can't actually use race um, conscious um, admissions policies but that means that under Title VI at a minimum legacy should be legally suspect. Um, because it's not educate, there's no educational justification for it, and it's actually um, leading to um, it's disadvantaging uh, students of color among others. But no one's actually getting there. And as like, if you read any of Kim's work, you know that. Title VI's implementing regulations also offer a really concrete, just legal foundation to make that argument.
2: I wanted to talk about the personal ratings, actually, because uh, I I thought it was one of the things that didn't get covered properly today. And I think that's a disappointment.
6: Let me just add, because um, the Solicitor General, uh, Preligar, also uh, made the argument towards the end that, uh, you know, uh, Harvard should basically get rid of the legacy and athletic preference, the legacy and athletic um components that that would be a viable race neutral alternative see what happens uh, you know when you get rid of those uh, you know if if getting rid of those was sufficient she kind of seemed to concede that then, Har- then harvard doesn't need to use race i saw there's a kind of parallel there between what she was arguing which and i thought she was i thought she was the best you know in terms of uh, making the arguments um i thought she was the best attorney in the courtroom but i thought that was interesting that she was really playing defensive there i think on a number of different levels.
2: What I saw her to be doing, which I thought was quite brilliant, and I I agree, she was excellent. There were a lot of really excellent performances today um, by by, um, a variety of lawyers. I thought you saw a middle ground being offered of a remand. And that was her point, I think. I think the United States and the trial courts below all said they've met the strict scrutiny burden. But when, now that you're before a 6-3 court where there are likely six, well, six justices, again, who've already demonstrated with Dobbs that precedent is not of great concern to them at all if they disagree with it. And she knows, and a number of, it seems like, um, Seth Waxman knew as well that our best hope might very well be To take one for the team, we lose. Maybe the lower court says we didn't satisfy strict scrutiny, but I didn't hear her to be conceding on the facts. And this is how I want to link back to the great points about your brief, but also how we get to personal rating and what didn't get well explicated today, which is the actual facts. The fact is that the lower courts, the trial court, the court of appeals, skewered SFFA's expert reports, skewered them. And what is very difficult for non-wonks and statisticians and empiricists, non-empiricists to understand is how that happens. Because you're like, how in the world could this court case make it all the way to the Supreme Court? And they never convinced anyone that any of their simulations were worth even throwing in the trash can. And this is what happens with the personal rating. When you're dealing with justices who are willing to be disingenuous, who are not engaging in any fair and accurate way with the facts below. I mean, what I found disappointing is that we had justices today who were reading from the petitioner's briefs as if that was an appendix of facts, Mm -hmm. acting as if, and maybe they haven't, maybe they did not read the 150-page trial court opinion that Judge Burroughs wrote, but these are judges below who didn't excellent job of explaining complex regression analysis, but it wasn't actually very complex if you read it. What the problem is, is that what SFFA is saying about the personal rating is just as a matter of fact, not true. That what SFFA's experts did time and time again was make up their own facts. They made up their own data. They threw away a third of the class and said, well, if we ignore a third of what happens, if we ignore... Um, uh, essays and we ignore, if we say, oh, guidance counselors don't matter and who gets into Harvard, if we say teacher recommendations don't matter and who gets to Harvard, then we can prove simulation D is the right way to go. But none of that is the factual world we live in. So they were like on their own planet. But that's what happens when you have justices who do not care enough about law which is what we're supposed to be doing, and facts. That's what I think is the overwhelming problem. And so what most people think is going on with the personal rating is not at all what the judges who actually heard the cases said what was going on. What's going on with the personal rating is guidance counselors and teachers in a world that is systemically racist against Asian Americans, giving garbage in, and probably being racist in a way that Title VI d- dis- treatment doesn't capture and which we all should care about if we cared about disparate impact.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Kim. Uh, at this stage, we want, there's a lot we can come back to. Um, and uh, But I, one thing I want to make sure we get to here is our student questions. So we're going to start with uh, Tristan's question and then get to Joey.
7: So Tristan, go ahead. Hi, yes. Thank you for having me on your program. My first question is what do you make of Justice O'Connor's Grutter opinion that at some point affirmative action policies must have a logical endpoint? Given that it has been nearly two decades since that decision,
6: how should the court determine when that endpoint should be?
0: That's a great question, which I think took up a lot of the airtime today.
6: (laughs) I mean, that question was asked over and over again about what is the endpoint. Every single lawyer was asked about that. And I think you know, it speaks to the fact that, you know, you look at the educational benefits of diversity. There, there is no endpoint. point. You know, diversity is always going to be a good thing. If it's a good thing now, it's always going to be a good thing. Uh, so, you know, the logical endpoint is when you can get that diversity without using race. And that speaks right. to racial disparities also. So really, I mean, the compelling interest, it's, it's inherently there's inherently a remedial component here. You know, no matter we can talk about compelling interest in diversity. But the reason we need to use race is because of racial inequities. You know, that's why we need to use race to get diversity.
0: Well, I thought the problem was that you could stop using race when you know that you've achieved racial justice. But the question is, how do you measure that? Uh, How do you? uh, And I think uh, there it's not clear that there's a coherent answer unless you're going to use Uh, some um, numbers. And I think that was what was bothering a lot of the justices, that you're always going to use numbers to figure out. uh, I mean, we know that if you have a method that achieves like zero or 2% uh, black representation, uh, probably you're doing something wrong. Uh, even the SFFA lawyers conceded that. Uh, but I think beyond that, uh, it's, there, there isn't societal agreement uh, as to when we know uh, that we can uh, stop using racial classifications. And I think that was very troubling to those of the justices who seem committed to a 25-year deadline on uh, racial classifications.
1: Yeah, just to jump out on this question to connect with what Vinay and Julie, your answer about, you know, talking about numbers and, and, uh, Tristan, your question about Gruder. One observation is that there was v- very little support for diversity among the conservatives. I mean, it was, I, I, I think Tom is right that they were looking for another answer, like remedying past discrimination. As a, and this, this is another shell game where the reason why universities talk about diversity is because the precedents before that have said, well, remedying past discrimination is off the table. The one thing I want to highlight is one lawyer who did not do a good job. Was Seth Waxman. I mean, I actually thought Waxman was almost writing Alito's brief for him. There was an exchange where he says, well, the numbers don't change based upon affirmative action and, and the numbers come out the same. He kept saying this over and Alito said, if it doesn't make a difference, then why even put it on your application? And literally what Seth Waxman said at representing Harvard, he he's said, it's triage. We get too many applications at that point, he was writing Alito's opinion for him, which is basically Harvard doesn't want to spend the money to read applications; they aren't reading applications; they're just violating whatever Alito thinks that you know thinks that they're violating. But I, I thought this question of that question of numbers was was kind of a disaster for Seth. I thought that was a disastrous oral argument from Seth Waxman. Any other answers to Tristan here on his first question, Jonathan?
3: I think this is a moment in which, you know, you're encountering at least a disagree of disingenuousness because everyone knows that Justice O'Connor at most was being aspirational and her 25 years was in part benchmarking, benchmarking back to backy and also generally around number. And anyone who's actually taking seriously this question would recognize that if you actually want to get past, you know, uh, America's legacy of legalized white supremacy and racial subordination, you actually have to take steps to reckon with it. The summer of 2020 reminded anyone who wasn't already paying attention that we've spent the past 200 years not actually reckoning with it. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we've made so little ground over the past 20 years, in part because Supreme Court doctrine is actually set up to prevent us from making that ground. And so, you know, at best... um, You know, uh, you can read it in different sorts of ways, but I I don't think anyone um, who is raising the 25 year argument was doing it because somehow they feel fidelity to Gruder when some of these justices might actually be overturning that very precedent.
7: Great. Um, Tristan, do you want to ask your second question? Yes, thank you. So my second question, uh, somewhat similar to the first, is... Given that affirmative action programs for university admission have been in place now since the early 70s, uh, it seems, in my view at least, that one of two situations could be true, that either affirmative action policies have succeeded in writing past government discrimination in education and in achieving diverse student bodies, or else that they have failed to do so. And although reasonable people can certainly debate either side in good faith, would not both scenarios fail strict scrutiny? If affirmative action policies have failed in their aims, then does that not fail the narrowly tailored prong, since the burdens on the disfavored racial groups would not be outweighed by the benefits to the favored groups? And if affirmative action policies have succeeded in their aims, then do they not fail the compelling government interest prong, since then there is no longer a reason to maintain the policies? Thank you.
2: Kim. All right. Yeah. I'd love to jump in because, Tristan, what I love Please, to uh, try to have my students think about in this highly rhetorically charged context is that we go to law school to be lawyers and to look at facts and law in a particular context. And what I did appreciate about today's oral argument, I think it is one of the first in the many times where the court has considered admissions at a selective university, is there was a discussion of campus by campus differences. There was a difference even between the UNC and Harvard Facts. And what I do think came to the fore, if you're listening closely and aren't a little overwhelmed by how many times people said, check the box, check the box. Like I, I had a running list of the things that are basically incendiary to make, you know, the average person just go, Oh, well, this is just inherently racist, right? We're going to say that's the Alito, Gorsuch, Thomas, um, Roberts camp, which is, you know, anything to, um, Accomplished diversity is itself racist and similar to Plessy, right? Like that is an outlier, false equivalency, um, absurd, doesn't do very well in your law school class sort of argument. But what I do think we had an opportunity to hear and what I think is a, is a, an answer to what is an, a very good question you're asking is that each institution, when and if they are sued for discriminating, um, uh, accused of discriminating, um, specifically, if you're accused of discriminating against Asian Americans, I have written and I have, as a civil rights lawyer, sued UC Berkeley under that fact pattern. There is an uh, there's a there's a legal standard I have to meet. I have to prove that there's a, a prima facie case. Either I have to have evidence of disparate treatment. So there's that way of engaging with this. But what's going on in this case is you had one allegation, one count that was about discrimination against Asian Americans, but then there was an entire different set of counts that was about, we want to get Grutter overturned. And so that's one let's hide the ball because it's not really a concern that Harvard didn't establish and satisfy this very high standard of strict scrutiny. Because if it had been about that, what I'm saying is then there should be a very specific campus-by-campus campus engagement with exactly how do you consider race at Harvard, exactly what is in and out, not in Simulation D. So I think that the, the problem... For looking at this as something that's just generalized, like we get to a certain year and everybody's either gotten over the hurdle or hasn't gotten over the hurdle. I think there were a number of lawyers today who tried to present that nuance. And if they're justices who were honestly open to hearing that, well, we're UNC and we have barely taken down our Confederate monuments and we don't admit that many African I'm from North Carolina. I mean, I, that was one of my honest choices for school. I have to say that. Um, both places that I considered. I was told by kids who were um, at Harvard that people called them the N-word as they walked around campus, people from Boston. And I was also told at UNC people got called the N-word. So I was like, oh, well, I guess I better choose based on what I want to major in because there's racism at both places. So I don't think that There really has to be a one size fits all for every school on every campus. And that there is also a lot of difference depending upon the selectivity. And I felt something that finally came out today is that there are going to be some schools and there really are plenty of schools who don't consider race. There are plenty of schools that get more, that don't have enough people who apply who are qualified to go to their university to even need to choose. So I feel like we're on the cusp of being able to answer your question better if we start asking, are we talking about UC Berkeley? Not let's just talk about all the UCs as one. Are we talking about Harvard? Are we talking about Asian Americans applying to UC Irvine? Or are we talking about Asian Americans applying to UNC? And you're going to find very different answers. So I think that's a good question. And I my answer would be institution by institution, historical diversity rationale by diversity rationale, you would get different answers.
0: It is really fascinating, though. Yeah, because I think... Um... You know, one thing that's been said about today's argument is is that the uh, justices were uh, really doubling down as though they were policymakers. And I think I would love to hear uh, Joey's question uh, as we close up the hour. Yeah, hi.
4: Thank you all for for having me on tonight.
2: Um, I guess I'm just curious, you know, if the, if some members of the court are willing to maybe not say that diversity in, you know, higher education uphold that as a compelling interest, but to ha- perhaps maybe, strengthen the narrow narrowing narrowly tailored prong perhaps say you know you know quote unquote narrowly tailored with teeth what would that look like kind of what could an institution do more than Harvard had already done to kind of prove that it really was its its last option would that include you know maybe a specific you know time stamp on its on its admissions program like what would that kind of change in
4: the that prong even look like if that were an option?
5: Could I jump in? Yeah, please, so, Tom. So I, I actually thought that when they took this case, they were going to overrule Gruder. I mean, um, and I and I was telling Julie in class earlier that I, sort of my handicapping of the possibility of a remand um, grew a little bit based on what I heard. Right, and so so the remand would be. To consider, um, and that perhaps Harvard hasn't done enough in the narrow tailoring department. So I would, I would posit that maybe they should go to the MIT model, right? The MIT model, they don't do A, they don't do athletes, or at least I haven't seen it. <laughs> they definitely don't do legacy. They do a soft tip for donors and 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 staff and faculty, but it's very minor, right? So and they and they use test scores. So you would imagine the MIT model. I mean, I, I don't think Gorsuch was being disingenuous. I think that Gorsuch would actually accept the MIT model, um, and I and I also think, uh, what's his name, uh, Kavanaugh was not being entirely disingenuous. I think he's he's thinking like, look, is there something from that history of Reconstruction that possibly can give us a way out here because we're not crazy about the diversity idea anymore, right? And so, so I think that. Uh, there, I, I had a little bit more hope for a remand. Now, the Supreme Court generally doesn't engage in fact-bound error correction, which this would be. Then saying, like, look, uh, we're going to stick with the test, but you just applied it wrong. So why don't you try again? Uh, but maybe, I mean, I think in, in in a in a way, that seems to be the best possible outcome. And I think that there is not an inconsiderable chance that, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's it's better than. <laughs> than one in four, but there's a chance that that might actually happen. Remand and and consider the MIT model.
0: Well, I wonder if that option is one with heightened awareness after Dobbs of the crisis of legitimacy that many think that the Supreme Court has faced. overruling precedent, I think, is going to be uh, very damaging to the court's legitimacy in this case. And it may well be that the remand of the kind you suggest, Tom, uh, might be one way for justices who care about it and are listening to the debates about legitimacy to hedge. The Solicitor
2: General you know, used the term destabilizing multiple times in a very, yeah.
0: a yes. way, I think, to
2: make that yes. argument, we,
6: Jonathan, you wanted to do yeah. that? So- no, Vinay, feel free to jump
2: in.
6: Yeah. Yeah, I was not. I mean, I think, you know, that whole, that whole, uh, it was exhausted in Fisher. I mean, when they remanded Fisher the first time, it was so the lower courts could really, you know, strongly apply strict scrutiny. Um, that's what they said. And in the Fisher two oral argument, that whole issue of remand, talked about remand. I think Roberts, a bunch of them talked about remand. Got us thinking, well, maybe they're going to remand it again, but but they didn't. I mean, it's just... I think um, I think it was a, a good argument for uh, Prelegard Solicitor General to make. Um, and she made a lot of good arguments, I think. But I, I just couldn't see it happening again.
1: Vinay, you were the only one of us who was in the room. Any any observations uh, that you'd want to share with us from any body language or, or was anyone rolling eyes at other justices?
6: <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, I was watching Kavanaugh just because of you know, what we know about kavanaughs you know, hiring diverse clerks and just his views on diversity. Uh, I would just, he seemed really interested. As I said he was like really like, you know, engaged, interested, nodding his head. I thought Coney Barrett asked him, uh, you know, sharp questions. Um, you know, Gorsuch was kind of snarky as, as usual, you know, through <laughs> a lot of laughter and stuff talking about the squash players and all that. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I was looking at Kavanaugh's, you know, just level of interest and, you know, just... Um, uh, what his demeanor was. Yeah. I would be really surprised if there was, a, if there was a remand, I think, you know, uh, uh, Prelegar was kind of pushing that as an option because she was trying to go with every option that might save affirmative action. You know, she really emphasized the service academies and, you know, thought about the military brief, I think way back in Gruder, but uh, yeah, I, I was saying I'd be really surprised because they did it before in Fisher. They considered it in Fisher too and decided, you know, threw up their hands. There's nothing else that's going to come out of a remand is essentially, you know, the way they were in Fisher, too. And I can't see, you know, what else is there really to remake? I mean, we've exhausted this issue.
4: So, Tom, he doesn't even think it's one in four. You don't even have one in four, Tom.
5: Oh, no, I, I said that it was one in four. Right. I, I didn't say that that was my prediction of what was going to happen. I said that that it's, one, the, yeah, it's yeah, the, you said it. yeah, It's a 25 percent chance. But <laughs> so I, oh, I I. Yeah. Before I walk before I listened to that oral argument, or you know, I, I was teaching, so I only listened to about half of it. I, I would have said that it was not even on life support. But after listening to the oral argument, I thought there's 25% chance they might just just remand it and, and say, look, look at the MIT model. Forget Harvard. Pick the other Cambridge school.
1: <laughs> so, last a quick round of just does does anyone think that uh, that Gruder is going to uh, remain? Law diversity is going to remain uh, a viable interest um, after this case. I see everyone's head shaking. Everyone thinks Grutter is being overturned. How, does anyone agree with Tom's suggestion that it, that this could be remanded for uh, a, additional review of of um, di- of, of other remedies, uh, other remedial justifications?
4: So could I say something here? The reason that I just tried to line up Vinnie and Tom is that I agree with Vinnie, but to the extent that it turns out to be Tom's prediction, recognizing he said one in four, it would be what Julie said about. So if you use the post reconstruction backlash framework, Pulling back a little bit from that to reclaim a little bit of legitimacy before going for the blue. So maybe the blue isn't now, maybe the blue is in two years, but there will be a blue. The only question is when.
1: Well, we really want to thank all of you and your flexibility, your insight, your engagement, um, at this late hour, your, your stamina, uh, and, and, holding up through the marathon of the oral argument, um, and then your.
0: It's been a long <laughs> it's day. It's been a long
1: day. As we were, and it's also <laughs> been Halloween in some deeply creepy, uh, but appropriate way, um, um, as well.
0: I think we've all earned some candy.
1: <laughs> That's right. So, and thank you to both of our students, Tristan Betts, uh, and, uh, Joe Amen. thank you for, for adding your questions to the mix as well. We want to thank all of our guests today and huge thanks go to Fordham Law School for sponsoring this podcast, especially our Dean Matthew Diller and Associate Deans Joe Landau and Young Jay Lee for getting this up and off the ground.
0: The Constitutional Crisis Hotline Music is Climbing by Poddington Bear, aka Chad Crouch logo designed by Clinton Webb of Agave Studios. And we're deeply grateful to the amazing Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock of Yellow Armadillo Studios for making everything happen. Subscribe to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline, Affordam Law Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a rating and review. We
1: will see you at the next crisis and go vote wherever you get your ballots on November 8th. See you soon.